And uh, it's not only powerful, but it's also inadequate. <laughs> Welcome to the future of coding. I'm Ivan Reese. The interview today is with Miller Puckett, the creator of Max, which later became Max MSP, and Pure Data. I was inspired to do this interview with Miller after hearing him on the very cool Art Music Technology podcast by Darwin Grouse. That episode had kind of bad sound quality, so I only recommend people listen to it if they are extremely interested in visual programming and music and the history of Max, which is, of course, extremely cool. So I recommend everybody go and listen to it. Just tough it through the audio quality. It's super worth it. Really interesting stuff. There'll be a link to that in the show notes, which you can find at futureofcoding.org slash episodes slash 47. Miller only had an hour to record the interview, so this episode came out a little bit shorter than some of our recent ones have, but I actually like the feel of that a fair bit, and I'll probably try to keep future episodes closer to the one-hour mark rather than pushing well past that as some of the recent episodes have. In the interview, Miller and I talk a little bit about the history of Max, but again, to learn more of the historical details, you'll want to go listen to that other episode with Darwin Grouse. In that episode, he mentioned specifically that he had a lot of thoughts over the past 30 years about scheduling and um, some of the lower-level implementation-y, design-y kind of stuff behind Max and Pure Data that he seemingly didn't really get the chance to develop to the full richness that he wanted. And so that was the hook for me going into this interview. I wanted to, to find out now that it's been so long since those projects came to life, how might he have done things differently? How did he arrive at the things that he did? And how has he reflected on that path in the time since? I certainly learned a number of very interesting things that um, are sort of painful to me to hear in my particular dogmatic worldview as a uh, strong proponent of visual programming. So I guess it just goes to show you that you have to uh, kill your heroes. I kid. Miller is delightful, and I think you will enjoy this interview as much as I did. found the podcast interview you did with uh, Darwin Gross. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And enjoyed that a lot. And there were a couple of things that you said in that interview that I just kind of wanted to follow up on because I felt like they would be really interesting to the community that I'm uh, doing this podcast for. What, what kind of community? Yeah. <laughs> it's called The Future of Coding. Mostly researchers, mostly people either working independently or in academia who are interested in not quite HCI, not quite programming language theory, looking at ways to make richer, more dynamic tools. There's a very common thread of people who are interested in building visual environments. 
Max and Pure Data are two of the quintessential touchstones for the history of visual environments. Something that you said on uh, Darwin Gross's podcast is, of course, that it was you know 30 years ago that you were first working on this sort of thing and, and that your recollection about exactly why things came about might be, you know, distant memory at this <laughs> Suspect. point. Suspect, yeah, right. Yeah. So I, as much as I would love to go down that rabbit hole and say, oh, you know, why do you have bangs the way they are, that sort of thing. But I think a good place to start would be getting anything that you do remember about how you went about designing Max and the patcher and then eventually pure data. Right. Okay. Yeah, that works. First off, the thing that always interested me about uh, computer music was the possibility of getting it to work in real time. Uh, so the, the environments that existed when I got started in 1979, I think, were mo- almost exclusively non-real time. There, there were the beginnings of things that you could use in real time, but they were not programmable in, in any very general way. And so you had a choice between sort of special purpose uh, things of various kinds or or a general purpose language, for instance, uh, Music 11, which was the precursor to C sound, which, which was a fully general sound renderer, but, but which would never run in real time. So uh, I, I, was, um, I was in the lab that was being run by Barry Verko, who was the inventor of C sound. And uh, Barry's, uh, Barry's true interest really wasn't so much in making a software synthesis engine. In fact, those had existed before C sound. I think that was a sort of a thing that he did in order to. Uh, to just sort of be of practical help to the community. It, it, um, he never saw that as his main uh, drift. Uh, his main focus was on, uh, was on real time. And so I fell in with him and, and caught up, caught onto the idea that, gee, you could try to make a computer music instrument run in real time and that would be a, a wonderful thing to have happen. So the main things that I were thinking about were, first off, um, being able to design sounds in, in, in a software kind of a way. And second, just how to solve the problems that come up when you when you change the model from feeding punched cards into a computer into uh, either playing on a keyboard or um, having other kinds of real-time input uh, coming in. For instance, the sound that would come in from a microphone. So a thing that you couldn't do in, uh, in C-Sound or its predecessors was uh, hook a microphone up to it and uh, play an instrument into the microphone and, and have something come out with an echo or, or some distortion or filtering or something like that. You couldn't make a guitar pedal, for instance. And in fact, I remember one visitor to the uh, MIT Experimental Music Studio, uh, first question they asked when I was showing them what I was doing, yeah, can I plug my guitar into that? And the answer was, no, you can't do that just yet. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm working on that. <laughs> so really, um, the the whole thing that I was thinking about had nothing to do with graphical programming environments. In fact, I wasn't even thinking in terms of graphical programming environments when I got started. I was thinking in in terms of real time structures and 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 uh, ways that systems could react to real time in, inputs. So it's it's another kind of of HCI problem, uh, but it's not the problem of arranging things on a screen. It's the problem of of making your computer into a musical instrument. And I, I actually didn't uh, even care at the outset what you had to do to specify what the instrument was going to be. I just cared about having the thing be instrumental in nature and not, uh, and not batch in nature. And that's um, pretty much where, the, uh, where all the terminology came from. Um, the, uh, a researcher, uh, another um, you know, very influential researcher, Max Matthews, who's usually described as the father of computer music, um, was also concerned about real time, also interested in real time. Um, and um, one of his ways of thinking about it was that you would trigger things. And triggering 
I think, you know, etymologically, I s- assume trigger really comes from pulling the trigger on a weapon. But, um, but in fact, when people talked about triggering things in 1970, anyway, e- even though the, I mean, come on, the, the Department of Defense was, was, um, was funding most computer science research at the time. So there certainly was um, a militaristic uh, financial background. Back- well, the, the zeitgeist was military in, in, in the 60s and 70s, as far as computing was concerned. That, um, if you wanted to be bored, you would uh, work on banking software. And if you wanted to do the research, then, then you were being, being funded by the military. So um, uh, I didn't even think twice about the idea of using terms like trigger. And, of course, if you're going to trigger something, the natural, uh, whatever you say, verb or, or I don't even know what part of speech bang ought to be, exclamation or something. Yeah. Uh, the, the natural sort of thing that gets triggered is, is a thing that goes bang. Um, I thought that was kind of funny because, of course, the th- the thing that you do not want to have happen when you plug your amplifier into the wall is have it go bang. Yeah, like a loud <laughs> pop or something. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. So, so there was actually sort of a built-in uh, what's the right word? Built-in warding off of bad luck by giving something the worst outcome as as, as a name, right? <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to like click or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Click click would have yeah a click would would be a minor problem, but a but an explosion would be yeah. a, a major problem. That would yeah. <laughs> that would be enough perhaps to get the audience to leave the concert hall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so I started naming things bang just as a uh, just as a way of saying, yeah, this isn't going to work, but let's write it anyway. <laughs> um, I um, th- it really should have been a single dot. <laughs> like that, a like a period character yeah, kind of like thing. Like a single yeah. period, you can't parse it yeah. as a number. Yeah. And I actually proposed to the PD mailing list, why don't I change bang to just period? Because it's completely neutral. It doesn't say anything about what is going to happen. Right. It's, a nice, it's a nice reference to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because the message that gets carried across the galaxy by some automaton turns out to be a single dot. It, it means greetings. <laughs> so, um, and anyway, uh, and you wouldn't want to use exclamation point because that's usually pronounced bang. So why don't you just use a period? Um, and the and the answer I got back was, oh, we love Bang. Let's just use Bang. <laughs> it's, Let's just stick with Bang. It's totally part of the identity of of Max and PD and and, and the derivative languages that have come since then, for sure. It's, it's true, and and I didn't really quite invent it because, of course, the notion of of it being a trigger is uh, predates that. But uh, but the idea of calling the trigger Bang was, uh, I think, that originated pretty much with me. So going back to that early period where you started before you developed the patcher interface and when you were working on the, is it fair to call it real-time scheduling at that point? I think so, yeah. I think it's the right thing to call it. Yeah, so when you started working on the real-time scheduling problem, which is, I, I, I'll just as a brief aside, say I am a colossal fan of, of visual programming and of using graphical metaphors to represent things that are happening inside the execution of a, of a program. And I think there's there's a lot of really, really interesting ideas there that have yet to sort of have, have their moment. But what I mainly actually wanted to talk to you about today was that whole scheduling matter, um, specifically because in the, in the podcast interview with Darwin Gross, uh, you said that one of the three books that you still have in you is a book on scheduling and uh, that you may someday write that book. And so that makes me think that whatever thoughts you had about it at the time that you were first working on that project 
um, you're still having more and more thoughts about it to this day. And I'm sort of curious, how did you approach the problem back then? And how has your perspective on the problem changed in the time since? Okay. Um, well, first off, I, um, being at MIT, I had access to people who thought about real-time programming. And I didn't find that their research actually was answering the questions that I was asking. Um, so the um, the way people thought, or at least the way the people I talked to thought about real-time programming and scheduling back in the day was, you have a bunch of inputs and you have a bunch of outputs and you want the outputs to uh, to be some function of the inputs regardless of time. And you simply want to do the computations that compute the outputs from the inputs as fast as possible or perhaps by some hard deadline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for instance, the thing that you can't do is make a net metronome because a metronome isn't a function. It's a thing that has its own state. Mm. Um, so, um, so I didn't get anything out of the real-time community, that I, at least the bit of it that I talked to. Um, there also were people in other, in other places who were writing uh, real-time operating systems. Um, and that was all about uh, interrupt handling and, getting, again, getting things in, into tight deadlines, usually being deadlines under, uh, under a millisecond, like in the microseconds. Like what you'd use for landing the, the Apollo lander or doing some sort of... Uh fly-by-wire system for a fighter jet or something like that, something where you need a result no matter the quality of the result can be sacrificed, but the result has to arrive in time. Actually, yeah, I don't <laughs> – I'm not sure how people would talk about quality versus uh, versus timeliness kinds of trade-offs, but um, but a, a better – a better problem space to think about was robotics, mm-hmm, where yeah. where you would have an arm, and if you reached too far with the arm, you wanted to pull the gain back so the arm would come back in. But if you did that too late, then the arm would come back in a little too far, and then you'd push it back out, and it'd go out a little too far, and so on, and pretty soon you'd punch yourself in the face. Yeah, or you'd get that sort of hunting behavior where it oscillates back and forth. Yeah. Right, exactly. So uh, most of the people I think who were doing like sub-millisecond scheduling really were worried about robotics applications or other kinds of, of uh, servo control kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And... That wasn't what I was trying to do either. Uh, it's hard to explain what I was trying to do. <laughs> but one of my examples was, gee, someone walks up to the thing and plays a C major chord, and you just want to hear the thing come out the speaker. Um, <laughs> and that, well, how would you do that? Well, the other example I had, uh, besides those two kinds of examples, the, the sort of flow-based real-time model and the interrupt-based real-time model, the, the third thing I knew about was Max Matthews's work. He had done a thing called RT-SCED, which stood for RT-Scheduler real-time scheduler. And that was a thing which um, modeled uh, whose model or whose programming model was a bunch of of parallel processes, each of which was waiting for a specific kind of trigger to set it off. So, for instance, you would model a piano. I'll get this approximately right, but not exactly. You you, you would model a piano as as, um, 91 processes, each of one of which has a dedicated key that's going to go down, one of the 88 keys or three pedals, and then there's going to be some kind of action that will take place when it, uh, when it gets set off. And then after whatever the process is takes care of the action that is associated with its trigger, then it um, specifies what the next trigger is that it will wait for. So for instance, if, you're, uh, if you want to be conducted, uh, and if you were only playing things on beats, you would wait until the conductor uh, conducted beat one, and you would say, "All right, I'll play a, I'll play note number one, and I'll wait for the conductor to hit beat two. That'll be my next wait condition. And then when beat two comes in, I'll play the next thing, and so on like that." So, I thought about this, and I had two, um, I had two reactions to this. One was that 
um, in general, there might be several different th things. There might be a disjunction of things that uh, that you would want to wait for, and you might want to have different actions based on the various things that might happen. Um, so, for instance, the um, uh, this is a bad example, but the piano key, if you hit the uh, soft pedal, the, the action moves over. And if you hit the key, the action goes bang, right? So so you need actually to wait for two things, and, and, and whichever those things happens, you need to make the appropriate response. And uh, you don't know in advance what order they're going to happen in. That would be the piano telling you what score you were going to play before you went in and played it. And just to illustrate that for the listener, that the action moving over is something that takes a certain amount of time to happen. And then pressing the key, you know, if you pressed it right at the same time you're pressing the, the soft pedal, the soft pedal won't necessarily have moved over far enough yet if you're doing it, you know, incredibly quickly. Right. Actually, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting uh, comment because that's precisely where the metaphor falls apart. Because in fact, the uh, probably the hammer is flying through the air at the same time as the action is sliding over, yeah. and you don't know where the hammer is going to hit the string until the hammer actually hits it, and, and that's when it matters where the action actually happens to have been shifted over to. Uh, so, so really, what uh, really to, to model this correctly, you would need to do something uh, continuous in time and yeah. solve some differential equations, but. Um, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't take any of that stuff into account. I was thinking, well, look, it's a computer. We don't have to deal with uh, with physical limitations. We can have things happen instantaneously, and that that might make it easier to think about and easier to design the instrument. Even though the instrument might not have quite as interesting a, <laughs> a character as it as it would if you really built one. Um, so uh, so yes, the uh, so yes, you would idealize the thing as being the shift. The sorry, the shift key. The the soft pedal yeah. is a, is a sort of shift key, and and it matters which order you hit the shift key and the key key, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Um, so that was uh, that was critique number one. So then I started thinking about rather than having the so-called process, as as Max was calling them, uh, rather than have the process specify what it was waiting for, it would specify simply that it was waiting and have the thing that triggered it um, know which processes had to be triggered when it went off. So you're moving some of the knowledge into the 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 message that's doing the triggering, exactly, yep. or actually over to the sender, right? right? Yep. In other words, it's not the receiver that says where I want to get the message from; it's the sender that says where I'm going to send the message. That was that was idea number one. Idea number two was rather than have all the data in the in the world be global variables, why don't you actually have the data be encapsulated in the message that is the trigger, right? And that I think uh, I don't think people had done that before. Um, at least not in music systems. Uh, and that's really what made the Max paradigm what it is, is the fact that you, you send things messages and the message isn't just a trigger, it is the thing that you, <laughs> it's the trigger plus all the information that the trigger needs to, to specify all the things about it that you might care about. Again, which is determined by the sender, not by the receiver. Interestingly enough, what that meant was that a thing that received a message then didn't have to go out and, and read data, it, uh, it could maintain data encapsulated in itself and it could receive data as part of these messages and therefore you would have a very high degree of data encapsulation uh, uh, by using this model. And that's a, you know, that's a plus and a minus. It's a, it's a plus because it means that, um, you're, that your programs will grow more robustly because you know, as you start adding stuff in, you, you don't have these interdependencies between things that get out of control. Yeah, you don't have to worry about global state changing some local behavior in a way you didn't expect. 
Exactly. But the, the downside is that, of course, some things really want to be global, like the sample rate. And so you don't want to have to send the sample rate along with every message. And so what ended up happening was a sort of a compromise between globality and locality, where most everything that is happening that is interesting in real time is local. But certain things that you need that you really just want to have around, such as uh, stored uh, sounds, which are large arrays, or um, or globals such as sample rate, um, those are those are indeed global, and objects can uh, things in 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 Max entities which are called objects can can go f- can go find them and do things with them. And when you're doing this work, are you aware of things happening with small talk? It's this 85-ish, we're thinking? Well, I started doing this in about 82. Oh, okay. Um, I became aware of small talk, I can't remember exactly when, but somewhere along in there. Um, Somewhere between 1980 and 85, uh, two influential object-oriented systems arrived. Uh, More than two, but one of them was small talk, small talk 80, as it was called. And... One was um, so-called Class C by one Bjorn Strustrup, which later became C++. So at MIT, even in 82, we had a precursor of C++ that, um, that essentially was C with message passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he didn't, you know, it didn't have all the poly- polymorphism and other kinds of things like that, but what it did have was the notion of a data structure that you would hide from the outside world, and you would pass messages which were selectors that... Um, that at that time uh, had to be resolved in, at compile time. Yeah, static messages rather than... Right, uh, exactly. Um, but, it, but of course, you could see immediately how to generalize that. And, and we also knew that Smalltalk um, uh, was completely dynamic in that respect. So the, so the static versus dynamic thing was a, was a choice to be made. Yeah. Um, I think it was very much in the air um, in, in programmer circles between 80 and 85 that this was going to be a good way to do things because, it, uh, because basically of the data hiding aspect of it. And uh, Max and PD borrowed that very, very directly. Um, uh, Max and PD did not borrow notions like inheritance, uh, polymorphism, um, uh, all, all the other stuff that goes into object-oriented stuff these days. Lazy evaluation, forget it. Yeah, all the things they added to small talk on the way to self and on the way to future derivatives to try and make it scale up to larger programs and, and, and give more different ways of forming abstractions. Right, exactly. Um, and as far as I was concerned in the design of Max and PD, I wasn't concerned about that because I was only concerned about things that were as large as a piece of music. Yeah. Uh, however large that would, would be. And uh, I found out that... Um, they can get pretty big. <laughs> the size of a piece of music can be... It can get up to about a thousand sub-windows. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, of course, if you, you probably not a thousand different sub-windows. Probably that would include copies of things. Yeah. And so probably you would talk about hundreds of unique sub windows in a patch though though then of course there are there are people like myself um who upon discovering an environment like max or pure data say okay can i meta program this and and generate programmatically a thousand different sub windows Um, oh yes oh yes i've done that (laughs) oh yeah yeah but at that point you're not caring about what those thousand sub windows are you're caring about the the program that generates them that that's exactly right yeah um and yes, in fact, <laughs> one person at Earcom where I was working did exactly that, wrote a list program that generated these million-line uh, queue lists that would essentially sequence the passing of audio data from one static location to another in a max patch and, and, and uh, actually got pieces of music to stage based on this system. Oh, wow. I, I 
I laughed at it, but it actually turned out to work. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm uh, was curious to hear whether they were doing it legitimately or if they were doing it to just see if they could bring down your environment. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, it was in a Nearcom studio with a concert date, so it was wow. legit. It was it was like let's make this work. All right. <laughs> and and what year was that about? Do you think? Um, I'm guessing that was '92 or '93. Okay, so by then. You know, the environment has had a lot of use, and uh, I'm sure the robustness was a lot higher than it might have been when you first started working on it. Right. I, th- I think that was pushing it, but I think at, at that point, yeah, things were pretty much settled in. Yeah. So backing up a little bit to the, to the very, very early days of the patcher and the, and the scheduler behind it, when you were working on the scheduler, uh, you mentioned three different kinds of scheduling, and there was one that I didn't quite understand the relationship to the others. There's Max's scheduler, which is that sort of independent processes that communicate with messages. Right. There's uh, real-time, a la real-time operating systems and, and sort of that hard real-time um, kind of scheduling where you you care about hitting specific millisecond targets. Right. And then you also said flow-based scheduling. Right. And I, I want to know what that is. Okay. So the... I've forgotten the name, but there was actually a PhD thesis out of MIT under Michael Dertusos, who was the prof uh, that I was aware of at the time. Uh, this was a um, it was a real time scheduler that looked like a, an acyclic graph, so it actually you could make graphical representations of it if you wanted to. And the idea was that you had inputs and outputs that were essentially voltages, and you wanted the output output voltage A to be the logarithm of input voltage B, say, and you wanted that to settle by a fixed deadline. In other words, if the, if the input changes, which it would do at discrete moments in time, you wanted then to, you had then a certain amount of time to get the output to, the outputs to be a uh, a function of the inputs, which was described in, in an in a acyclic graph, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I never, I don't know what the name of that kind of scheduling paradigm is, but it's a somewhat different thing from the from the interrupt-driven kind of thing because you don't talk in terms of tasks. You only talk in terms of having the outputs reflect the inputs functionally uh, within a deadline. Mm-hmm. And so the execution model would be something like each one of the uh, the nodes in this acyclic graph would get a certain number of opportunities to recompute its result or something like that? That's correct. And what you would do is you, on a computer, you would actually pre-schedule the whole thing. So you would simply run the nodes in the graph in a fixed loop of any length that you wanted to. Uh, and, the, and the loop would have to be designed in such a way that you could guarantee that, the out, that when an input changed, the, uh, that would trickle down to all of the outputs that it affected by each of their individual deadlines. Right. Uh, and I don't know, that might be kind of a minority uh, approach to real-time programming, but it was something that I was aware of at the time. That sounds vaguely similar to how some game engines work, in my experience, but I might be misunderstanding it. It, um, it could be. Um, I mean, uh, there are certain sorts of things that you would want to code that way. Uh, I'm trying to think of a, of a good example right now and kind of failing. Um, so... Uh, any other thoughts on scheduling before we get to the the next phase of the evolution of the patcher? Uh, one thing that uh, one thing that turned out to be very important was to have messages actually have ASCII equivalents, oh. so that you could type them and see them, print them out, and they would print out their entire uh, entirety uh, when you printed them. Right. 
So the uh, so that precluded the idea of having any kind of data structure because yeah, that would any live you know, data that would yeah. require formatting. I suppose you could you could have messages with parentheses in them or something like that. But uh, but I quickly decided that uh, since the um, since I wanted the message to be uh, human readable, mm -hmm. um, uh, the the best way of doing that that I could see was to simply have there be only atoms that were things that you could type, which were symbols and, and numbers, and um, and then to have the message simply consist of a string of those atoms, or not a string, but an, um, a collection of those atoms and uh, an array of those atoms of, of various types, right? And so did that prevent you from doing things like having a, like a higher order message where a message contained like a function or something like that? Right. You couldn't send, you could not send a, a function around, although you could send its name around. Right. So, so there, uh, yeah, that was quite a strict limitation in what the code would do. And I did that uh, partly because I wanted things to run very quickly. And for, I, wanted, I wanted to be clear to the user how long it was going to take a thing to happen. Okay. And a good measure of that was going to be simply how many messages got passed. Where, whereas if the message itself could contain, you know, could, could be some polymorphic thing, then it could be arbitrarily large and complicated. And then just the, just the fact of passing a message from one thing to another could take a certain amount of CPU time that you'd want to care about. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you lose the, the sort of the uniformity of how long it takes to process each message and your your utility of using that as a measurement goes out the window. Right. And the other thing is uh, all names are global. Uh, and that confused a lot of people because, of course, that works directly against being able to make scalable programs. And again, that was for the reason that um, uh, when I saw composers trying to use computers, uh, they would write something like A that they'd define somewhere and not get it. So actually, scoping was a uh, was a middle hurdle to get over for uh, for people, as opposed to a, uh, a source of power, which it would be in the hands of a programmer. And to the best of my memory, it's still that case today in Max and Pure Data, is it not? There's no namespacing or anything like that? As far as I know, I mean, I, I haven't used Max in a while, but as far as I know, Max doesn't have it. And I'm pretty sure PD doesn't. Um, what you can do in PD is, is name mangle. So you can, you can make names that, uh, that, <laughs> that are generated in such a way that they look local. But you can still see what they are, and you can still get them from anywhere else in the program if you really want them. Yeah, which at the very least that gives you an escape hatch if you need it, if you're doing something very complex, something you know, where you're generating code or generating you know, structures of your, of your flow graph in PD. Right. Actually, um, you need it right away because as soon as you want to make um, a thing which is a delay, you need to have a delay uh, line that you will name. And that name should be local to the, uh, to the abstraction that defines the delay. Right, or else if you use two of them, they'll share. Yeah, a, they'll fight, yeah, right. Yeah. And, and so you need it right away. And yet I make people actually name munge in order to, to get that to happen as opposed to have that have a, a local variable kind of facility. That, that reminds me a little bit of the debate around hygienic macros. Does that feel similar to you or is that sort of a, a different sort of thing? Um, gosh. It, like in the Lisp community where you have a, a macro preprocessor and, and you know, if you have hygienic macros, you can, you can use names without fear that the, I that the macro expansion will cause... Right, and sort of naming conflicts. Right, in other words, making making sure the name stays within the macro. Right, and and I suppose yeah, if you can't scope a thing within a macro, then again, you're going to have to name munge to get the thing to work. So that probably is about the same thing, or 
or in uh, the early days of, of C++ when you wanted to make generic functions like an array add that didn't know the type of arrays it was adding, uh, then you would have to write this horrible macro that didn't know what type it was operating on and then <laughs> and then invoke the macro on all the types that you were going to want to ever define the thing for, right? Yeah. And we're still we're still to this day trying to find better and better ways of of dealing with generics. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So on that topic, um, when you're working on the early versions of Max and then later Pure Data, what sort of thoughts about types are you having? Um, <laughs> well, I wanted the type system to be as stupid as possible, mm-hmm. and uh, where stupid is 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 intended as a compliment. And um, in uh, in the days of Max, the uh, there was one consideration that was just practical, which was that I was writing for a 68,000 processor, um, and uh, there was no floating point unit. So floating point operations were roughly, as I, I believe they were roughly 300 times as expensive as fixed point ones. And so you needed an integer type as well as a float type, and then of course you needed a, a thing for naming, which which I called a symbol. Um, and that and those were the three types. That was it. So were messages not a type? Then, or would the message be the type of the contents of the message? Yeah, messages were not a type. Um, okay, that's right. Messages were just messages. <laughs> I don't know how to say that, but the, but the type system really had three types. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So does that does that then mean that those three types are they're they're a kind of data that the system is aware of and, and operating in terms of? Does that then mean messages are not considered part of the data model? Are they part of the execution model or something else? Oh, let's see. Um, I don't know how to answer that. Uh, <laughs> it might be a very bad question. I'm, I'm still, uh, it's been about a decade since I did a, a deep look at the uh, internals of how Max and PD execute. So, Yeah, but I'm, I'm actually even thinking just externally. Um, yeah. So uh, internally, in in the implementation, a message is simply an array of of typed of typed atoms. Yeah. And an atom is just a type, and then and then a thing of that type. Um, and so there are types like that in in the .h file that that everyone reads if that wants to write a PD object. Right. But uh, the user never sees those types. Uh, the user meaning the PD programmer. Yes. Yep. Yeah, and so there's let's let's forget this types question because that's a that's a rabbit hole. Um, when you're when you're building this environment, how are you distinguishing between you know you the programmer working on the the underlying system and the scheduler and eventually the interface versus the end user who's going to be writing you know, uh, compositions within this environment? Are you, uh, and then is there a third category, which is these are people who might be making plugins or extensions or that sort of thing? How are you dividing up the, the, the different roles of people who are going to be all touching the software that you're building? Right. I think the answer is that it's a direct, um, it's a direct map of the culture at IRCOM in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Specifically, there were composers who, uh, who wrote music and who would never be much more than a PD user or a Max user. In other words, they would learn how to how to make things out of Max, but they wouldn't actually learn how to make Max or make additions to Max. And then there were the and then there were people called researchers. I was one of them, and uh, we researchers would actually write software 
that uh, that hopefully the composers would be able to use. Mm-hmm. And then there was a layer of people in between who um, who are now called realizers, but who at the time were called musical assistants. And these people were uh, people who um, who were not only uh, power users of Macs uh, at the time, but were also people who knew enough about the internals that they could write their own Max objects, which were essentially plugins. Um, and so I was thinking in, in terms of those three populations as I was as I was writing along. There, the, lots of people were able to write small, uh, were, were able to write you know application programs in C that would go up to a hundred lines and would do a specific thing like interpolate between two rhythms. Uh, there were there were people like that around, and I was interested in having them be able to uh, use their work inside an environment. But then there were people like me around who could make the environment work. Um, and then there were people who simply would use the the rhythm interpolator to, uh, in a piece of music, and they would just want to be able to call it and feed it the two rhythms, you know, make a patch that fed it the two rhythms and enjoy the interpolations afterward. And those would be the composers. And at this point, none of the composers were doing something that I see more of nowadays where, um, specifically with Max, now that Cycling 74 is owned by Ableton, uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> um, where with their tool Max for Live, you can build a Max patch that has a certain user interface skin for it and then use that within Ableton Live. So you have this new category of people who are end users of Max at the same level as the composers at Earcom. Um, but they're actually making yet another piece of software that is used by another less programmatical, more musical person down the road. <laughs> that's a that's an interesting comment. That that indeed has happened, and I'm working with a with an Ableton uh, musician right now who um, who uses plugins that are written in Max sometimes, but he would never actually dare try to use Max himself. He doesn't have time to learn it. <laughs> He's too big. Um, so that that is a thing that's happened, and that's kind of funny because Max itself can have C plugins, so you have at least two layers of 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 plug it, plug inedness going on there. Yeah. And did you ever feel like back back in the early days of working on on these projects? Did you ever feel that sort of multiplication of the number of different layers of people interacting with this system? Because that's in in my own uh, work on visual programming languages, which are used by people to make software, which are used by people to make software. It gets really hard to conceptualize for me, and I'm wondering if that's something you also had to struggle with. Um, gosh. I I don't I don't know the answer to that question because if I did struggle it was a struggle that was spread out thinly over 30 years of messing around. Right. <laughs> so I don't think I was ever actually aware of that as a as a thing. Um, what I would be aware of is people were trying to do things um, in Pure Data or in Max and and they were coming up with gothic weird solutions because of <laughs> because of design flaws in, in PD and Max, because I hadn't anticipated certain usage patterns. And then I would see those, and then I would try to abstract a solution to it that I would then uh, add to Max or to PD. Uh, but that was, uh, but I was unable to, I didn't, I never actually thought about someone who was doing something that I wouldn't be doing myself. And you'd sort of, like, I'm sure that eventually came up. Somebody would come to you and say, here's something I want to do. And you'd go, oh, I'd never thought about doing it that way. Let me go back to the whiteboard and and see what I need to change about the core design. Yeah, that would happen. Um, the 
you know, the the core design is pretty much frozen these days because you know there's a, there's 30 years of back compatibility to worry about. But uh, that was definitely true in the in the early days that um, people would try to do stuff and it would be hard, and then I would just have to react by making something. Um, for instance, the whole idea of um, uh, in in Max, there's a thing called the table, which is a thing where you get to just draw a graph of a of a of a sampled function, and then it can just apply that function to any anything. Like it can use it as a table of probabilities, or it can use it as a sort of transfer function to get from some control change to some level change that might be nonlinear. And it's just mapping input numbers to output numbers yep. according yeah. to this curve that you've drawn. That you draw, right? So it's nothing but a response curve. Yeah. Well, uh, well, that came up because a composer I was working with wanted to be able to do that, and. Uh, and the first version of the, the the thing that I was calling Max at the time didn't have that facility, and so I just added it. You mm-hmm. know, it was it was like okay, that's a, that seems like a very general thing that that other people are going to want to be able to do. Let's just add a thing called Table that does that. And I'm still angry that that it seems every new visual programming environment that comes out these days doesn't have that because to me that's in hindsight that is such a such a powerful thing and such an essential thing when you're working in a visual paradigm. It is, and uh, it's not only powerful but it's also inadequate. Ah. <laughs> so, um, and in fact, the, one of the things that I've been struggling with for uh, for I don't know, but not all thirty years, but any, anyway, twenty of them is uh, is a more flexible way of being able to visualize data. Hmm. Um, and this is something I've written about, but um, but just to sort of say it in, in fifty words or less, um, what Max and PD are very good at is describing real time processes, and what they're very bad at is describing uh, heaps of data that you might actually want to just refer to in your process. A good example being a musical score, right? It's a heap of data. It's not a functionality at all. Um, and uh, there's a problem in, in Max and in Pure Data, which is that um, you're, you're writing these things um, in terms of how they act. You're, you're making an instrument, but someone wants to store a score in the thing and do things that refer to, to, uh, to objects in the score. And uh, at least so far, there's no good design, or at least I haven't seen a good design that uh, that actually marries these two ideas in a single uh, environment that works. So, what have you seen, and what have you thought about for attacking that problem? Because you're absolutely right. That's a that's a huge huge issue. Well, um, there uh, there's an attempt in pure data, which is a sort of a part of pure data that most people don't look at. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's called data structures. <laughs> which is, uh, in fact, it's what Pure Data was named for. Because right when I started Pure Data in about '96 was when I was thinking serious, most seriously about this question. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my idea was to um, was to have a sort of a draw program where you could draw shapes like triangles and whatnot, and and the colors and, and the locations of the vertices would be data that you would then um, integrate into the real time programming environment. So that, for instance, the shape of a triangle could be turned into the the timbre, timbral controls for a note of music, and then you would make a score that would be a bunch of triangles on the screen. Uh, to just make a stupid example, and then you would you you could tell the thing to play, and you could you could sort of see the triangles and imagine what they would sound like, and then you could actually get the numbers out and, and make those sounds, and and vice versa. You ought to be able to analyze the sound and turn it into a whole bunch of triangles that would that together would reproduce that sound in some way, right? Mm-hmm. And then when you think about what that actually would entail, uh, it's, it, it gets very, very difficult and complicated very, very fast. I know in my personal experience of playing with that feature of pure data, I, I did find it to be 
um, unexpected. I wasn't like as a newcomer to it, I wasn't sure what to make of it. Um, knowing now that it's designed to solve that problem, that, that data visibility problem, uh, gives me an interesting perspective on it. Uh, as and I'm assuming this was, this was your idea, your, I don't want to say responsible for it, but you're, you have authority over it. Are you able to say, uh, how you think it worked, where it fell down, what you might do differently? Um, sort of. Yeah. Um, so first off, just, uh, just, for fun, I should say, uh, PD didn't even start out as a Max clone. I, I threw all the Max-like stuff in in it a year after I started PD uh, because there was a music production I needed to be able to make some sound. <laughs> right, and so it's sort of let's just go with what we know. And it's, let's make a really let's make a simple, stupid, stripped-down Max so that we can at least get something happening out of, out the speakers. Yeah. Uh, but in fact, what uh, the first thing I ever did with Pure Data was make a graph for a paper that I was uh, writing with with Judy Brown, a physicist on on uh, phase vocoders. Hmm. And I wanted to make a graph, and the thing I was graphing went up to about 5.1, and I did not want the graph to go all the way up to 6, as any graphing program would do. So I wanted to make a graph where the line just went outside of the rectangle of the graph. <laughs> and so I did it, and uh, that, was the, that was my sort of uh, founding example of what I wanted Pure Data to be able to do. So to go back to the, to the question of, like, is it working and, or why is it not working, um, what doesn't work is very easy to find. It's that if you want to actually make a patch that goes through the data structure, it is misery. Um, there is a there's an object in Pure Data called pointer, and you have to get a pointer to to get itself latched onto one of the objects on the screen. And there's no graphical way to do that. You have to do that programmatically, which means you have to, to make a patch that goes and looks at the objects in the screen and figures out which one the pointer should be pointing at. And the only way to do that right now is to actually go linearly through all the objects in, in that screen until you find one that, that obeys whatever criteria you're looking for. And that's just, uh, that's just horrible. And then you can have objects that have other objects inside them. Yeah. So, this, uh, so there is actually a, 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 an encapsulable data structure uh, thing going on here. And would that be like a B-patcher? Is that one of them? No, no. It's like um, it's like if you wanted to have your triangle have a curve stuck on it, what would you do? Well, you would say, well, the curve is actually going to be an array, and that array is going to be of objects. And those objects could just be numbers, but they could also be any other uh, uh, pure data type, uh, a data type in, in the data sense of, of the thing, the data structure, right? So you could make the uh, you could make the curve actually consist of little triangles, say, right? Uh, oh, but then to get the data out of those triangles. Uh, at the patch levels, misery because you have to make a patch that that scoots forward until it finds the the thing that owns the curve, and then you have to make another thing that scoots along the curve until it finds the object that you're looking at, and then you have to, you know, and then the uh, items in that have names that you have to utter in order to get the, the stupid data back out. So it feels very imperative to me. Yes, it is very imperative, and yet it's sort of turned inside out in a weird way because. Um, well, because you're making a patch that's doing this, yeah. and any, anything imperative in a patch is going to be kind of either sideways or inside out or something, right? Because you, you've got these two conflicting notions of when something's going to happen. Right. You have execution time and you have time time. Yeah. And, and, those, and those coexist um, rather difficultly in, in pure data. Yeah. And, and that comes to a fore when you're doing something like, you know, let's write a pure data program to search for prime numbers just using the stupid algorithm. Uh, I, I've done it just for, for hilarity's sake. And uh, you come up with something that's just purely unreadable. You have two nested until loops, and you have to use triggers to get the inner loop to actually completely execute before the outer loop ticks forward. And, and by the time you're done, the, 
something that would have been three lines of C is I don't know, twenty objects or so. Yeah. And and furthermore, you cannot read it. <laughs> you can look at it and laugh, but but you you would never actually put yourself through programming that for any actual task. So yeah, so that's another thing. PD really needs a PD really needs a text language of some kind. You feel that you feel like it's it, it's worth dropping down to text to do this kind of thing rather than trying to find a different visual representation that might work visually but still fit the problem you're trying to solve. I think so. I think that. Um, Text languages are so good at describing going through a collection of things and, and picking out the one that matches a criterion. Mm-hmm. And um, well, that's an okay. So that's an, that's imperative programming, as you call it. Um, that's to say, that's that's the thing where you just sort of say what it is that you want to have happen, as opposed to find you know finding some sort of functional way of saying, well, yeah, what where's where's the object that that obeys this function? You know, let's map this function to everything and and just give me the set of all things that return true. Check that it has one element and so on like that. Like a query or something like that. Right. But um, well, first off, it's hard to make things like that work in hard real time. And second, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning Julia right now, which is a language that, that has very powerful mapping capabilities. Uh, uh, in fact, they seem to get more powerful every time, I, uh, every time Julia gets a minor upgrade. Um, and, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a wonderful feeling of power, but at the same time, it took me an hour to figure out how to sum the rows of a matrix. <laughs> because... I mean, I found it eventually, but um, but you know, in MATLAB you just say it, and in Julia you have to, you know, the the, the descriptions of how you do it that I found on the web pages that I that I first ran into basically meant that you had to had to do some kind of map reduce on on add, and it was like, oh, man, am I going to use map reduce just to do a row sum of an array? All I want to do is have the rows have mean zero. I just wanted to add them up, divide by n, subtract those, and. I can write that in two lines of MATLAB. And in fact, I can write it in one line. And I can write it in one lab of Julia now that I figured it out. But it turns out there is a function that does it. But if you wanted to build that function. Yeah, if you wanted to build that function, you, which of course is the ethos of Julia, yeah. uh, then, you have to, you know, then you have to do MapReduce, I think. And gosh, MapReduce, really? Okay, fine. Uh, map re- and by the way, it might matter whether you, whether you sum it from left to right or right to left, you know, because of uh, numerical precision issues. Uh, yeah. Right? <laughs> And so, actually, MapReduce would have to have a little bit of description about how you would like it to MapReduce in order to be able to specify that. And by the time you've done all that, I think you might have been happier just writing the damn loop. <laughs> yeah, it's that problem of the where you're pushing programming so far in the direction of mathematics that you start running into the the limits on what computers, as we build them, are capable of doing you know, before the the abstraction starts leaking, before the machinery of it starts to infect the pure mathematics that you want to preserve. Oh, I like that metaphor of a leaky abstraction. I'm <laughs> going to use that. Um, but yes, exactly. And also, simply the the mental load of understanding what the thing is doing might actually outweigh the uh, the, the increase in elegance. <laughs> well, oh, it's it's a it's it's a trade off of power versus understandability, I guess. I know there'll be some people screaming at their car stereo right now. If somebody was born into an alternate world where imperative programming wasn't the norm and the sort of functional or declarative style was more normal, the familiarity would help them. And so it might not be as 
foreign feeling, but we have our culture. So we have C as the underpinning of most modern languages that people learn first. Yeah, or JavaScript now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so even if it's just a matter of familiarity rather than something purer, that's still a, a factor that needs to be considered. Yeah, and and for me, you know, I go back to I'm writing this for musicians. Uh, they're they're not going to want to understand MapCar or, or MapReduce, right? Uh, and so, you know, I'm living within the world that I'm in. But I have to admit that um, I feel a lot more comfortable thinking of the computer as a thing that executes things sequentially. <laughs> and I don't mind the idea of just writing down that sequence. <laughs> and so, when you look at Macs or pure data. Um, you know, back in your your history of working on them and working with them, do you feel like they're capturing uh, computation as process and as machinery more than computation as like the evaluation of a mathematical structure, or is it somewhere in between? Or where where would you how do you feel about that? Um, well, it does abstract the machine away completely. So what I'm what I'm saying about how I like to think, it might be different from how a composer would like to think, which is more more uh, more in terms of a reactive. Well, more in terms of a musical instrument design. Yeah, like a guitar pedal or something. Yeah, it's more like a. It's not. It's not a modeling language, but it acts somewhat like a modeling language in that you sort of say, "Well, I want a thing that when you push it here, it does this." You know, mm -hmm. um, and that's different from a sequentially written program. For me, that's the right way to design a musical instrument. But if you are going to do something that will traverse a score, uh, which is a data, a heap of data, then. Uh, from my standpoint, the the most natural way I would think about that would be procedurally or sequentially. Yeah, where you care about something like this, this imaginary notion of the instruction pointer, where it is at any given moment, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yes, and and so uh, at least my comfort zone would be yeah having having the things that traverse these data structures basically be a, uh, some kind of, of language, some uh, sorry, some kind of text language, uh, but but a but a procedural one, an instruction based one. Uh, an, an imperative one is the correct word, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's one of the options, yeah. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Replit. That's R-E-P-L dot I-T. That's their URL. You can go there to check them out. Folks, the world is in the grip of an unprecedented use of the word unprecedented. Everyone is at home, which means the close collaboration we normally enjoy with our peers, mentors, and students has been shaken up. Before, I could just run downstairs and pull up a chair next to one of my coworkers so we could quickly pair program our way through a problem. Now, they've been reduced to throwing folders of source code at me over the proverbial wall. Not good. Replit, of course, have a great solution to this. Collaborative editing, which they delightfully call multiplayer. Send out invites by username, email, or with a unique link, and boom, you and your coworkers, students, friends, and family, if you have a cool family, can seamlessly work together on the same project live and in real time. You see their cursor, they see yours. You each type where you want to type, and it all syncs up like magic. If you've used Google Docs or other collaborative tools, you know the idea, but wait till you try it with code. I can even see myself using this when pair programming in person. It's so nice to be able to zero in on a specific character, to fix a typo without derailing my partner, to add comments while they add code. Here are some of my favorite little details Replit includes. 
Each person can have their own key bindings, so you, a high-level Emacs sorceress, can peacefully coexist with a Vim robot from the future. You can fill your REPL with emojis, and they work cross-platform, which is an important form of emotional expression in this dark time. There's a chat widget in the lower right, so while it's awfully fun to have text battles in the main REPL, yeah, I totally got sucked into doing that the first time I played with it, you can communicate in a safe side channel. For a limited time, you can have up to 50 people in one multiplayer REPL at a time on REPLit's free plan. So for your next pair session, spin up the world's coolest online REPL, invite your besties, and build something together with multiplayer. Thanks to REPLit, that's R-E-P-L dot I-T, for sponsoring our transcript and helping to bring us the future of coding. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a little bit about how the original patcher came about, and especially how you decided on what things to expose to composers and what things to hide from them. What can you recall about, about that time and, and how you approached that problem? The, the whole process was a process of carrying things over from you have to code this into C into you can do this yourself without having to code into C. Um, and in fact, the way I thought about it originally was, was reusability. So the idea that if you had a, um, a, a sequencer, that you could reuse it from one application to another, which would be from one piece to another. Um, and so what I was thinking about originally was taking pieces of, was a w ways of writing little pieces of code in C so that you could um, so that you could assemble a bunch of them together perhaps with some new stuff and make a piece of music out of it but then you but then the next piece you'd be able to pull say half of it out and reuse right so I was still thinking in terms of the piece would be a would be a C program but um, but the modules of the C program would be uh, would be largely reusable and then um, at some point, I was showing what I was doing to the um, to the scientific director of IRCOM at the time, Jean-François Alouise, and um, and I was showing him, yeah, okay, so here's a here's a little bit of C code and and put that together and it makes this nice oscillator with a, an amplitude control, and he looked at the piece of C code which is pretty elegantly uh, put together and he said, you, yeah, you think a composer is going to want to do that, and and the answer was kind of eh, maybe not. <laughs> And then I and and that was what made me think. Well, yeah, okay, maybe I'm just going to make a graphical editor to, to allow you to put these modules together because the the way the modules the the code modules were fitting together uh, were beginning to be thing were beginning to look like things that you could connect graphically, even though the functionality itself was pretty much fatally in C. Like I couldn't imagine writing a sequencer graphically, but I could imagine um, uh, adding two oscillators graphically. Yeah, like a modular synthesizer with patch chords. Yeah. Exactly that. And in fact, I knew all about modular synthesizers, so I had that sort of model to go on. And I knew that that was a very good way to, to talk about signal flow. Um, and, um, but most of what was going on, uh, um, we were using you know, a 68,000 processor, so we weren't actually directly coding signals at that point. So, so really, the question was processes that were about control. Actually, I was doing both. I was trying to write oscillators anyway, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to really use them. Um, 
but I was also writing things like sequencers, which are control objects, which you could run on a, on a one megahertz processor. And it, it got to be more and more like you're going to have this sort of repository of, of, of code, that each of which makes some kind of module, which eventually got called an object. Uh, and what I want to do is make a way for you to be able to put these things together. And the way that you put them together should also reflect the message passing scheduling ideas that I was working on. And so the obvious thing to do was, okay, have the message passing, you know, be be sent along paths that you that you describe graphically and also to have the things that you connect not be pictures of oscillators but actually command lines that instantiate things hmm. explain that a little more i didn't quite catch that oh well and if you're programming unix programs for instance um you you write a c program and the way you invoke it is you is you type something to a shell which is a bunch of arguments that that the shell takes apart and, and feeds to the c program right and so i was thinking all right so the thing that you type in a box is not going to be well you're not going to make an icon of an oscillator you're going to make an empty box and type a command to create an object and that command to me the, the best way of of doing that was going to be to allow you to just type uh, a command line yeah so it's your your object name in the first position and then a couple of arguments to that command invocation right and the and the object would have its own code that would parse those arguments and and decide what to do with them right and then and, and at this point you've already got one or more input ports on the top and output ports on the bottom or did that come later you, yeah you had to have the input and output ports because of being able to pass messages back and forth between these objects yeah so that things get executed at all right so i had already thought about the idea of having these objects that were instantiated with with um uh, with command lines and and inter and then defining interconnections between them, um, the um, the thing that finally occurred to me was that you could actually uh, make the connections, the interconnectedness, be graphical. Interesting. So before the interconnections were graphical, did you have another solution you were playing with, or were you just not sure quite how to do that yet? Oh well, um, I actually had a solution, which was you made a text file that gave everything a name. <laughs> <laughs> then, and everything it could only have one output at that time, and then uh, you would simply give it as part of its arguments. Probably, usually, the last arguments it would be all the objects that you would connect it to, uh, named, right? Right. So you sort of specify your signal graph that way. Right. And and so the, and so everything only had one inlet and one outlet, and then and then the connections were all by name. Um, well, first off, it, it became useful to have the idea of different inlet ports that would have different functions so that the messages themselves could, didn't have to say what they were. They could, you could just make the message do what it did by connecting to the appropriate input. Right. And the other thing that went along with that was being able to have more than one different output so that, for instance, something could say, give out numbers, but then could have another output that would say, no, I don't have an answer for you, better better do something different or something like that. I, I know you say that there is no notion of polymorphism in Max and Pure Data, but that's sort of a hinting in that direction where you can have a, like a some type in a language like Haskell where you say, you know, it's, it's going to be a number or it's going to be an empty value. Oh, right. Um, mm -hmm. So you have your, your one output is numbers are going to come out of this output, but if there's no response, rather than putting it over that same output, we'll, we'll put a different output port. And that's where the, where the empty result is going to come out. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way at all, but, but that's an interesting way to think about it. That's that's my whole my whole approach, and I think a popular approach in this future of programming community is like learn a little bit about everything and then try and see connections between things where they don't exist. <laughs> try to make a language that can allow you to yeah. describe them. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So, and this one's going to be deeply dissatisfying to the community and, and maybe you as well, but I'm, I, I'm just going to ask for my own personal curiosity. Um, in the time since you made the original Patcher and then Max, you know, grew up out of it and then eventually that got spun out and then you made Pure Data and at some point Cycling 74 came into existence and Pure Data kept growing as an open source project and Max kept growing as a commercial project. Max's user interface was seemingly, you know, refined and refined and refined and refined by the folks at Cycling 74. Pure Data's user interface also refined and refined over the years. Um, it looks and feels a lot nicer now than it did back when I first played with it, like, oh, maybe 20 years ago. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> How much of the direction of the user interface improvements in those projects came from you and how much of it came from other people, do you sort of feel like the interface to Max now and to Pure Data now fits how you imagined it would progress? Or did it fall short? Or did it exceed what you expected? How did the history of the interface development fit with how you felt it should have gone, maybe? Huh. Um, well, I would say in the case of pure data, maybe about half of the um, evolution was my work and half of it was the work of frustrated users who just wanted to be able to <laughs> select two objects and hit command K to connect them, right? As opposed to having to drag that stupid line. Uh, I was patient enough to just drag the stupid line. But on the other hand, I noticed that um, after an hour or two or three of using pure data, I would have a, um, my shoulders would ache um, because of the you know tedium of actually getting you know getting the mouse to be within five pixels of some stupid place on the screen. Um, so I'm actually, I'm actually glad that there are people who, who who think a little bit more broadly about um, the user experience than than I am able to. Um, the uh, at the same time, you know, a lot of the a lot of the stuff that uh, a lot of the improvements actually were me. Uh, just you know, just getting tired of having to do a thing and and finding a faster way to be able to do it. Uh, for instance, duplicate. <laughs> That's an important thing, and. Um, and there are other other things like that that I came up with over over time to try to you know just sort of make life less miserable for for people who had to use the program. Um, so a little bit of a little bit of both. Um, but PD also is um, there are two things going on. There one is just the um, the ease of of manipulating objects, and the other is the visual thing that you get on the screen. And one thing that I've been very um, um, luddite not luddite but very um, uh, reactionary about is uh, keeping that um, as nearly monochrome and as near and as pixel light as possible hmm. um, it uh, partly as a matter of aesthetics because um, I think it's uh, I don't know if other I don't know if I should not subject other people to things that I find irritating but I find decorations of all sorts irritating I Interesting. you know I like straight lines and I like them better if they're horizontal and vertical, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I like you know um, I like simple type. I do not you know I do not do uh, um, dingbat type and that kind of stuff. Um, other people you know sort of get off on decorating their um, their their programs or their windows in general. And you you can you know you can you can find things in PD that will allow you to decorate stuff, but um, but I simply don't and and and. And avoid having PD actually present itself that way, um, because I, 
uh, and this is an aesthetic thing. Uh, I, I don't think it's healthy to to be creating music by uh, making pretty pictures on a screen. <laughs> it's it seems like it seems like uh, um, it's it, it's a distraction. And when I see people just sort of making eye candy for themselves, as 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 laptop performers say, it 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 just it. It doesn't quite infuriate me, but it but it does disappoint me because I think they should be focusing all that energy on the sound and not on simply what they see uh, on their screens. You see a strong distinction between something that might have an ergonomic benefit versus something that is there just for you know giving somebody the warm fuzzies or something like that. That's right, and so er- ergonomy I really care about, but but the but uh, having the you know. Having beveled yeah, boxes, drop I do not care about. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't stand that kind of stuff. And do you do you feel like it's in keeping with, say, the aesthetic of like electrical schematics or something like that for uh, for pure data? Or is there is there some other sort of thing you can point to and say this is the root of the aesthetic that I'd like to stick with? Actually, it's my mathematics training. Oh, okay. um, you, you don't put in details that aren't essential to the argument. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> And so, yeah, so it tries to cut everything down. Uh, so, so it's deliberately an, uh, an attempt to cut everything down to the bare essentials mm-hmm. and, and to leave all distraction out. Neat. And uh, just the, the second half of that question was sort of in how it's evolved, do you think it fits what you imagined it would have been when you started? Or is it different? It's actually surprisingly close, I think. Um, well, PD hasn't really evolved a whole lot in, in, uh, in, fu- in any fundamental ways. Um, and the evolution that I've seen is, um, you know, a growth in the in the kinds of objects that people can use, and and also a growth in the sorts of media that you can apply it to. Yeah. Um, and that was that was something that I actually was thinking about it from the outset that that it should be, you know, insofar as as reasonable, it should be medium. Um, what do you call it? agnostic? It's not quite because the scheduler, uh, you know, time moves because sound moves in and out. Yeah. <laughs> but except for except for that little detail, uh, it, it, it's media agnostic. <laughs> yeah. Neat. Well, uh, Miller Puckett, thank you very much for uh, coming on our program and for sharing this this bit of history of uh, visual programming with us. Right. Well, thanks for inviting me. This was a fascinating conversation for me because this it gives me a point of view on pure data myself that I uh, don't often get a chance to explore. So that's it for our show today. I want to thank Miller again for coming on and thank you for listening and thank Replit for sponsoring the transcript. Go to repl.it and try out their multiplayer feature. The next episode is actually going to be one that Steve recorded. He left me with a handful of interviews that he'd recorded but not yet released, and so I'm going to start peppering them out over the next while to get those really cool interviews he did into the feed. I won't say who the guest is yet, but you know, given Steve's impeccable taste so far, I think you'll enjoy it. I have a few surprises planned coming up, so if you are listening to this and this is your first time with us, um, you know, be sure to thumbs up, like, fave up, fave up, ground pound, flip fry, sub dub, destroy that toggle button. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the future. <laughs>